Okay. So welcome guys. Thank you for joining. Thank you for coming through um, and for making the time. It's been a long week, but the weekend is almost here. And uh, yeah, um, as we go through this book, as usual, the only rule is there isn't really a rule. If you feel, if you have any questions, any comments, any thoughts you'd like to share, please feel free to stop me or post it on the comment section, comment section below. And don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button after that. So um, without delaying, let's go through uh, the book of Romans, right? So the book of Romans is the first epistle, first epistle, the first letter in our Bibles. And Romans really deals with one main issue, and that is justification by faith, right? Romans answers the question, how is a person made right with God? How can a person be justified? And this book has been very influential throughout history. So Martin Luther battled with this whole concept of being right with God. Someone said to him, you just need to relax, you know, just relax, just love God. That's what it's all about, loving God. And he said, love God. I often hate God because he had this view of God as a tyrant, as a dictator. And he couldn't see how he could be right with the holy God. He tried. He tried to make himself good enough to be accepted by God, but he never could. Right? He could never live up to God's standard. And when he read the book of Romans, he finally understood that we are justified by faith. And that's what sparked the Reformation. So Romans has been a very influential book. It's been, it's been very important. It's an important book in scripture because even though it's not comprehensive of all theology or even all of Paul's theology, it deals with the very important issue of the gospel. How do we receive the gospel? How do we receive the good news? How can we be in a right relationship with this creator that Romans speaks about? And so Romans is the first letter or epistle. And this brings us, brings us back to genre, right? It's an epistle. It's a letter. And so the letters in scripture are similar to letters in any time in history. Even today, you know, if people still do write letters, well, normally we use, we, we use emails today. You would have uh, an introduction, right? Um, you find out who wrote the letter and to who the, the letter is being written to. And then there's the content of the letter, like the actual point of writing the letter. And then there's a farewell and the greetings, you know, farewell, blessings, etc., etc. And that is what we find in the epistles in the Bible. You find the introduction of the author and the reason why he is writing. He's writing to this church or to that church or to these members. And then there's the content. And then you get the farewell and the benediction. So it's simple and straightforward, right? The letters in scripture are full of teaching. They're full of teaching and instruction. Sometimes there is narrative. Uh, Paul will tell us about his travels. He's going to Spain or he's coming from this area, from that, from that island. Or sometimes there will be typology, like in the book of Galatians. But the genre is mainly didactic, right? That means it's just mainly teaching. It's instructional. The apostles will be giving doc doctrinal information what we must and what we must not do. What can be complex is understanding the author. So maybe you've noticed every time we do have a School of the Bible session, uh, we focus on who wrote the book. We focus on the author, you know, from all the way in the Old Testament, Moses, Samuel, David, to in the Gospels, Mark and Luke. 
And going forward, we will try to understand the apostles. We'll try to understand Paul. We try to understand the man, which is very important because Paul is the one God chose to write a huge portion of scripture in the New Testament. So Luke gives us the most uh, in words, in word count, in size. But Paul gives us the most content, the most theological teaching. And when you begin to understand Paul and the kind of person he was and the life he lived, it becomes very helpful when reading scripture, right? It becomes helpful for you in your own devotions when you're reading through uh, Romans, Galatians, 1 Timothy. You start to understand his reasoning uh, and you start to understand his teachings better. Paul was a genius, right? He was a genius of the highest order. Um, his argumentation is so tightly knit together. His logic and thought process is it's flawless. It's impeccable, really. Every now and then, though, you will notice that he will deviate and go down a rabbit hole. And you may have picked that up when you read one of his letters. So, you know, you'll be reading like Ephesians and you're following. And then all of a sudden you're not following. <laughs> you don't know how you got to this point, And it can make it challenging to read. Right. Sometimes you read um, the epistles and it can be quite difficult because they'll be going. He'll be making a point And then all of a sudden he's talking about this thing and that thing. You have to focus, right? The epistles are not easy reading. Every verse is full of content, especially with Paul. It's, it's, it's very rich. And so you have to be mentally engaged all the time. This isn't bedtime reading material, right? So let's, let's get to the book itself. And we'll actually start with the last chapter. So if you have your, if you, if you have your books, um, turn to Romans chapter 16, right? So in chapter 16, before we get to the meat of it, right, see the end. There's, there's the ending of the letter. There's the greetings, the benedictions given. And, and then I said that Paul is the author of this, this book. But look at what verse 22 of chapter 16 says. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So what's going on here? Is it Paul or is it Tertius who wrote the letter? The technical term for this is called amenuensis. So when you have someone write for you where you dictate. So Paul dictated the letter and Tertius was Paul's scribe or secretary for the letter. And you will see this a lot in Paul's letters, right? You'll see it. You'll see it's from Paul and Timothy, for example. In Galatians, Paul will say, uh, this last part I'm writing myself, right? So Paul would dictate and the secretary would write, whether it was Tertius or Timothy or whoever. But there, would also, but there would also be interaction, which would explain the differences in style of some of these letters. right? So maybe Timothy would say, Paul, why don't you explain this in this way? Or Tertius would say, how about we rather you know, add this here in this, in this place? So that's why even though there's a consistency to Paul's letters, sometimes the writing style will be different. right? So just in case you ever read that, and you are confused by it. That's what's happening there. So if you go to chapter 1 now. Chapter 1 of Romans verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then he says in verse 7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, who is writing? It is Paul, an apostle. 
And who is this being written to? To all those in Rome, to the saints, the church in Rome. And then he goes into the main contents of the letter, which starts in verse 16. So most commentators believe that verse 16 and 17 are the key verses for the whole book of Romans. So if you look at verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that may very well be the main theme of Romans, the main message. Justification by faith. The just shall live by faith. It's an alien righteousness, an external righteousness is what we need. You need a heart transplant, right? Your own heart, the one that you were born with, cannot do it. Religions will teach you the answer lies within, especially today with the New Age teachings. They say that. But the Bible teaches us that the answer is not within. The, prob the problem is within. The answer lies outside of us. We need God to have mercy on us. We need his righteousness. Paul was a Jew and a Roman. So he was, uh, he was a Jewish person, but he had Roman citizenship. And so he was perfectly prepared to take the gospel to both cultures, to both the, 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 the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. And that is a great thing. It's not by coincidence. The Lord brought this about in his sovereignty. When Paul is converted in Acts, the Lord says, you will speak before kings. And so if you think about it, you can't really imagine Peter doing that, right? In a sense, in a sense you can, but Peter was a fisherman, right? He was educated. He had a Jewish educated education, but you can't imagine him um, going toe to toe with the Roman elites like Paul can. Paul grew up saturated with a Greco-Roman upbringing. Remember, he was, a, he was a Roman citizen, so uh, with, the, with the Roman education, he had access to a lot of the cultural um, um, understandings and teachings that were going on. He was also taught by Gamaliel. He was the top, top Jewish rabbi in the world at the time. And at that time, one of the important things in that society was the art of rhetoric. So it was public speaking, debating, defending ideas. That was, that was very important to the Greeks and then later to the Romans. It was an art that they studied. So you could become a professional orator, right? Wouldn't that be nice? You just go out and you, you speak on subject, any subject that you want to in the public square. If you were amazing at it, the rich people would come to you and hire you to teach their children. You know, teach my children how to speak, teach my children to sound as wise and amazing as you do. It became such a big thing that it even turned into idolatry. Because when we get to 1 Corinthians, Paul has to confront the idolatry of eloquence. Because people are now following preachers based on eloquence and how well they speak. And based on how they sound and how they can engage with the audience. The people chose to follow preachers simply because they were charismatic. Not because they were good and faithful teachers. And so Paul is not against eloquence. Right? But he says that there's something more important than that. And that is the power of God in preaching. He says in Corinthians that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, right? lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So this, there's an there's a eloquence that is dangerous. 
And that is the type that draws attention to the individual, to the preacher, to the speaker. It is a prideful, self-exalting use of words that shows human wisdom. You know, like, oh, you're so smart. How, look at how you speak, how you um, enunciate these things. You know, it shows how great a speaker, how well-read a speaker is. That is the eloquence we must avoid. We should use our words to point others to Christ, to exalt Christ. That is the power of preaching the gospel. It is making much of Christ. So don't worship eloquence, right? So that is some of the content, uh, context that Paul um, grew up in and the, the context that is coming, coming, uh, that is coming through in this book. And um, also what is happening at the time is... Um, so the thing is, when it comes to epistles, right, they are different from the Gospels in that when the letter is written, it is written to deal with something, right? So sometimes you have to do the hard work to figure out what the issue is going on. So you have to actually fill in the blanks of what is the context. And it can be quite difficult. In Romans, we read it and we ask, what is the context? Why would Paul write this letter? And so if you have a study Bible, it helps to read it because it will fill in all the blanks of what was happening at the time. Then you can read the letter with understanding, with a better context. And one of the theories that, of what was happening at this time is you have Pentecost occurring, right? So we looked at Acts, at Acts on Monday. There was Pentecost and there were Jews who were coming into Jerusalem from all over the known world. And then they get saved. They receive the Holy Spirit and then they go back to their homes, right? Wherever it is that they came from. These Jews, they start churches, they plant churches. So the early church would have been predominantly Jewish, right? Because remember, the gospel went out to the Jew first. And so even the early church in Rome, where Paul is writing, is Jewish, predominantly Jewish. Then the gospel goes out to the Gentiles and they are added to the church. And so now it is a Jewish and Gentile church, but it's still predominantly Jewish, okay? And then in the year 49 AD, uh, there's an emperor in Rome and his name is Claudius. He issues an edict. And in the edict, you can actually read about this in Acts chapter 50. I think it's Acts chapter 16. He issues an edict where he expels all the Jews out of Rome. Right? The Jews were causing problems and so he kicks them out. He expels them from, from the city of Rome. It's like having a church made up of Zulu people and Afrikaans people. If all the Afrikaans people are expelled, then all you're left with is the Zulu people. Right? And that is what's happened to the church in Rome. Now it has no Jewish people. So what is the, the church in Rome left with? With Gentiles. It is a Gentile church. Eventually the situation changes. And I think it's about five years that the Jews were away. And then the Jews come back into Rome. The Jews are coming back in the church and they are coming into a Gentile church. So it, in five years, the church is going to be different. There's going to be a lot of change. It's probably new leadership. There's a new culture. Uh, all kinds of things must have changed. And so there's going to be friction because the Jews, they have a very high view of the Old Testament law. And these Gentiles, they don't. They do not obey the law, right? The Gentiles eat pork. Um, they eat shellfish. They, they eat all these foods that are forbidden for the Jews. Um, the Gentiles don't get circumcised because they are Gentiles. And so these differences and these issues are threatening to break up the church. And so if that is the context, then... If you know the book of Romans, some of the things that Paul deals with, right? What does he deal with? He talks about food. He talks about the nation of Israel itself and the Gentiles being grafted in. 
he deals with all the different groups in the church by saying we all need the same salvation. We are all justified by faith. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter uh, who you are. We are all saved the same way. And then Paul will deal with the law and he answers questions about ethnic Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham. And so what about the Jews? What happens to them now that salvation is available for everyone? And so he will address that as well. Um, so I hope that makes sense. Any questions there before I, before I continue? No. Okay, cool. So the structure of the book quickly is it's, you can divide this book into four. Chapters one to four talks about the need for justification, right? The need for justification by faith. Chapters 5 to 8 speak of the results of, the just, of justification by faith now that you are saved. Chapters 9 to 11 speak of the nation of Israel. And then chapter 12 to 15 is application in light of justification. How should you live? Right. So let's go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, if you look at verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His, in, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly dis perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So this is a very important passage. What does Paul say? Firstly, in creation, you can see God. And what do we call this? We call this general revelation. This is the revelation that is given to every single human being on the planet. It does not matter if you were born on Robben Island or some remote island in South America or in the North Pole or anywhere where they have never heard the name Jesus Christ. If they have never even heard of the Bible or heard, that, or heard anyone say that there is a God, they know that there is a God. Right? Each and every human being has this revelation according to the Bible. How do they have this access? Well, you live in this world and so you know. Right? What Paul is saying is as you look at the creation, as you look outside to the created world and you look at everything around you, you know that there is a God. And like we saw in Acts, when Paul is preaching to the Gentiles, what did he appeal to? He didn't, he didn't open up a Bible and say, this is what it says in Deuteronomy. No, he appeals to the creation. He said, look how wonderful and gracious this God has been to you. He has given you food and he sends rain and sunshine. You should look at the creation and marvel and worship God because the beauty and the splendor of creation testifies to the beauty and splendor of its creator. Right? The creation we live in, we live in a world that is not just functional. Right? Food isn't just for sustaining. It is, it is for enjoying. We have flavors. We have variety. We have this kind of food, this kind of food. Um, it's made not just to, to, to eat and sustain us, but for us to actually enjoy and appreciate. Uh, trees and plants aren't just for producing oxygen. They come in different sizes and colors and shades. It's, it's pretty to look at. Creation has form and it has beauty. And this is because God is beautiful. And this is a design by God that is evident not only with your eyes to see, but also in your conscience. So every human being knows about God in their conscience. If they tell you that, look, I'm an atheist, 
uh, God doesn't exist. I don't know about God. You know, he's not real. There is no proof. The Bible never tries to defend the, the existence of God for one, right? And what does Romans 1 tell us? It tells us that they are suppressing the truth. That's what verse 18 says. They do know nobody in the history of the world, nobody at this present time is ignorant of God, right? You can't come up to someone and say there's a God and be like, oh, what? Since when? Romans doesn't say that they are without the truth. It says they suppress the truth. They squash it. You try to cover it up in unrighteousness. It is a conscience effort, right? You don't accidentally suppress knowledge of something. It is deliberate. So in creation and in their conscience, every human being has access to general revelation. The problem with general revelation is that it is enough to damn you, but it is, in, it is not enough to save you, right? Everyone is guilty because it reveals clearly that there is a God. We know him. Creation testifies and reveals his attributes. But general revelation is not enough to bring you to a saving knowledge of God. Right? General revelation does not preach the gospel. What you and I and everyone else in the world really need is special revelation. We need God to come and reveal himself to us in his person and in his word. That is what we need. Right? We are saved not by our reasoning but by revelation. And so Paul is arguing here that every human being is guilty. We all need justification by faith. Look at verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So notice again, they know God. And in verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. So the Apostle Paul tells us that man, apart from Christ, refuses to do two basic things. He refuses to honor God as God, and he refuses to give him thanks. So they know God, but they don't worship God. And so they become ungrateful. When men and women turn their backs on God, and when that hap when that happens it's it's a spiral down into darkness right it's like it's a slippery slope it's it's only going to go from from bad to worse and what is the first thing that becomes characteristic of of men and women who've turned their backs on god it is ingratitude right you know when you give a child something like a sweet or a biscuit and they don't say thank you don't you hate that don't you hate that i mean i know it's a kid it's a little child but it's so offensive I feel like taking it back and eating eating that sweet in front of them. We, we hate it when people show ingratitude. So imagine God who gives us everything. He gives us life. He gives us rain and sun and food and clothing. He gives us good gifts. And people don't only, people don't only choose not to give thanks to God. They, they turn around and actually blaspheme his name, right? Ingratitude is horrible. Being ungrateful is listed alongside idolatry, homosexuality, and every kind of sinful rebellion uh, um, that, that there is, right, in that list that Paul gives us. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, it says that in the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, unholy, and ungrateful. So when we see that God has decided to give us another day in life, we should be filled with thanksgiving. You know, when, it, when, it be, when, when we pray for our food uh, and we give thanks, when we open our eyes and we see that the food is still there, we should close them again and give thanks to him, right? Because 
Ungratefulness is not just bad manners. It is, it is a terrible sin before the eyes of the Lord. It is blasphemy. Because you are not only, because you are not just, you know, saying, Ugh, I, don't, I don't feel like this. You are complaining and grumbling against God. It is telling God that his blessings are not good enough. So be aware of it in your own heart. Now, what else does Romans teach us about people when they turn from God? They become ungrateful and they become unwise. They think they are wise, but they actually become fools. And they begin to worship birds, animals, creeping things. It sounds a lot like religion, some religions out there, right? And then later on in the passage, Paul will say they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So notice like uh, the, the start of verse 24. What does it say? It says God gave them up. And the start of verse 26 says God gave them up. And in verse 28, I think it's the second sentence, it says God gave them up. The King James Version will translate that as God gave them over. And what that is what and what that is a picture of is of God putting restraints on mankind, like a dog being leashed to a tree, right? It can only go so far from the tree. In the same way, mankind can only sin and spiral down into so much darkness. God puts a limit on it, but mankind wants to go further. Mankind wants to be free from the restraints of God. And so God gives them over to their desire for sin, right? He undoes the leash. He, he, lets, he lets people go further, deeper into darkness. And in this passage, it is clearly linked to sexuality, specifically homosexuality. People want the restraints to be removed. God is long-suffering and patient, but eventually he gives people what they want and he removes the restraint and people go and then they get to the end of that restraint and then they want to go further and God removes it and so on and so forth. That is God giving people up, God giving people over to their sins. And it's a scary thing. Man continues to want his own way in rebellion against God's way. So when God gives man what he wants, right, it's a scary thing when God gives us what we want because men and women will say, we are free now. We are free to be ourselves. We are free to express our true desires, to be with whoever we want, to be whatever we want. And yet the Bible says that you are actually in the worst place. You are in judgment. It is God's judgment to be given over to our sin without his restraint. So verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. <clears throat> so scripture says that in homosexuality itself, there is judgment, right? While all sins deserve death and all sins are completely paid for in the cross, the Bible also teaches that there are sins that do greater damage and harm than others, right? Stealing and uh, murder are equally worth, worthy of sending you to hell. But murder has, has, does far more damage right, to those around you and to society. And it's the same thing with homosexuality. In the sin itself, in the act and lifestyle, you are receiving the penalty, the harm. That's what, that's what uh, Paul tells us. Right? That is why homosexuality is so destructive to an individual. You can read through the, the statistics, right? The death rate for people who practice homosexuality, the suicide rates, they are sky high. The use of drugs, antidepressants, uh, hardcore drugs, weed, alcohol, it is totally destructive. Elsewhere, the Bible calls 
sexual perversion a degrading passion. It calls it shameful and vile. And the point of that is not to mock sinners. It's not to label them or, you know, make them feel bad, but rather to name their sin honestly and accurately in order to drive them to their savior. People say homophobia, this and that. But if you truly understand God's word, it doesn't call for harsh treatment or fearing and staying away from homosexuals or casting them out or isolating from them. We are called to love them. And that means desiring to see them saved. That is sharing the gospel with them. And part of that is calling them to repentance for their sin, for the sin of homosexuality. There's good news in the gospel and that should be our attitude towards it.